Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, it is episode 100 with Pavel Rosnak. But first, before we carry on with the Hardware Wallet interview series, let me introduce the sponsors of the podcast. So firstly, look into Kraken, one of the top Bitcoin exchanges. They have an incredible focus on security. They've got Kraken Security Labs, which is working not just on the security of Kraken itself, but of other participants in the cryptocurrency world. They're known for acting ethically in the space. They're one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges. They're consistently rated the best. And if you're trading, you need to be somewhere with some of the best liquidity in the industry. They've got high trading volume and low fees, no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken have 24-7 support. And on the institutional and business solution side, they're very popular with institutions. They're providing the best-in-class accounting, reconciliation, and reporting services for cryptocurrency hedge funds, asset managers, and fund administrators. Don't forget, there's a Kraken OTC desk for those higher-touch block trades. They offer five fiat currencies, and they've also got margin and futures trading. So to learn more and sign up, go to the Kraken link in the show notes. Next up is Unchained Capital. These guys are doing Bitcoin financial services and they've got a two of three keys multi-signature vault. So there's a bit of focus around security. You can use Trezor or Ledger wallets and you still maintain control because you still have two of the three keys, reducing that single point of failure risk. And also if somebody were to attack you, they would need to take you to where your other key is as well. So it gives you a bit of buffer there. So if you create an unchained vault, you also get three free months of access to Safe Dynamo's Bitcoin Standard Research Bulletin. And Unchained also offer Bitcoin collateralized loans, allowing you to get USD liquidity without selling your Bitcoins. And it also means you don't trigger a capital gains tax event. So while that loan's outstanding, it's stored in what's called collaborative custody with Unchained holding one of three keys. You hold a second key and Unchained's independent third-party key agent hold the third key. To learn more and sign up, go to the Unchained Capital link in the show notes. So today we are carrying on with the Hardware Wallet interview series. I hope you guys are really enjoying the interviews so far. I think they've been quite educational and a good place for a newbie to get some info. So today we are interviewing Pavel, also known as Stick. He is the CTO of Satoshi Labs, the company behind Trezor. So with Pavel, we talk about making the world's first Bitcoin hardware wallet. We talk about multi-signature, as that's also quite interesting today these days. We talk about PSBT and air gapping with an SD card. We talk about the privacy implications and how that will change with the coming Trezor suite. And also, I'm quite excited about this coming idea of Bitcoin-only firmware for the Trezor. So with that, on to the interview. Pavel, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. So look, thanks for joining me in the Hardware Wallet interview series. And obviously, I you know had to get someone from Trezor on. So it was great to have you to join me. Um, let's let's start with a little bit on the background on you. Uh, let's hear a little bit on you know how you got into Bitcoin and a little bit of your history with Satoshi Labs. Yeah, all right. So I was born in Slovakia, but uh, since 2012, uh, 2002, I'm living in Prague. I moved there to study computer science at Charles University. And even during the studies, I already started to work at a company called SUSE Linux, which is uh, one of the biggest commercial uh, Linux, uh, uh, Linux vendors. And that got me into 
the world of open source because everything we did back then uh, was open source and I was collaborating a lot with uh, with people not only inside of our company but also with the competitors like Red Hat but we got our own common goal to be uh, a good uh, Linux ecosystem basically and during the, uh, that time I think it was like 2012 or even uh little bit before that, uh, we started a hackerspace in Prague called Bermlab. And uh, somehow uh, there was a conference uh, in 2011 called Bitcoin Conference organized by Amir Taki. And he came to the hackerspace telling us about Bitcoins and how we should attend the conference. And it was pretty nice. And that's where I think maybe not for the first time, but maybe for the first time I met Slash. And we were discussing a lot about uh, hardware aspects of, of Bitcoin. And basically it was mostly about mining, but then we were also uh, talking about the security of the of the coins. And that is a, it's a, it's a, basically it's a huge problem to have private keys stored on your computer. And coincidentally, there was a talk at the, that particular 2011 conference by Clemens Kep. Uh, it, uh, he was a German professor and he was presenting his uh, and idea of his students uh, of a hardware wallet and they were building that on Arduino. And we had a lot of discussion with Slash that it's probably not uh, enough power because it would take like maybe one or two minutes to sign a transaction and that's not very usable. And uh, we played with the idea a little bit, but not very much because I still uh, was working uh, at, at uh, my previous company and Slash was very busy with his uh, Slash pool back then. And uh, one year later in 2012, there was a Bitcoin conference in London and there was absolutely no mention of any hardware wallet effort. And that was the tipping point where we basically decided we should start uh, doing this because nobody is uh, taking care of that really uh, crucial and missing part of the ecosystem. And we started to tinker a little bit at the Burlmap hackerspace and playing with the ideas, how it should, how it should work. And... Uh, both me and Slash, we were software engineers. We basically had really no idea what we were doing at the time, but it was fun and we uh, learned a lot. And uh, some somehow the ecosystem also changed. And from the original idea where we wanted to produce like uh, 100 devices for our friends and from the people we knew from the Bitcoin talk, the ecosystem got bigger and uh, it was uh, in 2013 when Alena uh, joined us and persuaded us basically that we should really start a company and uh, uh, do that in a really big batch. So that was how uh, Satoshi Labs and Trezor was started. In 2013, there was an official company started back then. Yeah, so look, it's obviously this is the world's first Bitcoin hardware wallet. What were some of the challenges and the trials that you faced along the way when you were building that first device, the Trezor yeah. One? 
like I mentioned, uh, we had really no uh, very good idea what we were doing back at the time. Uh, funnily enough, uh, Trezor was my first uh, PCB ever created, and it seems it somehow worked fine. Obviously, there were a lot of uh, other iterations uh, later. And what in the beginning, what seemed to be the biggest problem, uh, it turned out to be really easy. I mean, the electronics and something that we have never thought might be a problem turned out to be a big problem. So uh, we had uh, electronics ready in maybe 2013, but then we had a really huge problem with uh, getting these electronics into either a metal casing or plastic casing, which uh, was kind of crucial because we wanted to deliver uh, a full product, not just the electronics board. And with the metal casing, we had a problem that the buttons were just too small. And at one point uh, during the process, you need to put this aluminum parts into an acid, basically, to create this protective coating on top. And that's a very delicate process because if you don't uh, have uh, this aluminium in acid for a long time, the protective uh, coat uh, will not uh, get created. But if you keep that there for a long time, the acid will start to dissolve the parts a little bit. And the problem with buttons was uh, they were just too small. So uh, if we kept them in acid for like a minute, the protective uh, layer was not there yet. But if it was like one minute and 15 seconds, the buttons were just completely dissolved suddenly. So there was a really, really delicate timing. And finally, we were able to figure it out and uh, moved on to creating uh, a mold for injection molding. And this turned out to be also a really big, uh, really big problem because of, uh, of again, the small, small buttons and uh, some other, other areas, which uh, in, uh, in reality, uh, we had to postpone the launch of the plastic version for a couple of months, maybe half a year even. So uh, this just never worked out with the original producer. And finally, uh, it was late 2000, uh, or it was, I think it was like middle 2014, we were able to find a company uh, in the Czech Republic, which was able to produce both electronics and both uh, plastic cases for, for Trezor. And we have this relationship since back then. And uh, it's really really healthy relationship because they they can guarantee the electronics will fit into the plastics and uh, that's how we resolved the problem basically to to find a good partner to help uh, this with us. Uh, another problem uh, which turned out to be uh, unexpected a little bit was uh, the original idea is that we will produce just the hardware and. Uh, software wallet ecosystems uh, will integrate the Trezor. But uh, there were very, uh, there were different priorities for, for the software, vend software wallet developers. So it turned out that we need to come up with our own uh, web wallet so our users can actually use Trezor. Uh, luckily, uh, some time later, 
uh, all the software wallets started integrating uh, Trezor. One of the best integrations now is available on Electrum. And we are happy about that because we want to be a part of the ecosystem. We don't want to, uh, we don't want to tell people how to use Trezor. So I'm really happy that there are other options. And this was the original idea, but uh, for a couple of years, it wasn't possible. Yeah. So these this two were the biggest challenges, manufacturing problem and the integration of Trezor into other parts of ecosystem. Yeah, that's fascinating to hear from your point of view. I think from my point of view, it's... For a long time, it's been my typical recommendation for newbies that, you know, if you're a newbie and you need to get your coins off the exchange, I would normally tell them, hey, just get a Trezor. It's one of the well-known kind of uh, products that uh, you can give to a newbie and that that person can pretty much just plug it in and it's mostly a nice web wallet interface for them. Uh, Although, obviously, there are some criticisms, but we might get to that later. Uh, But I think on the whole, it should be recognized that, you know, this is the first Bitcoin wallet and it's, you know, to this day better than people leaving it on an exchange, right? Um, But uh, let's talk through some of the features then of the the Trezor, because you've got two main products, right? This is the Trezor 1 and then the Trezor Model T. So do you want to just talk through just at a high level, what are some of the main features of the different devices? Yeah. So like you said, uh, Trezor 1 uh, was the first hardware wallet and it's also being used as a bank benchmark for any, any other upcoming wallet and people are selling, saying like, oh yeah, this, is, uh, this uh, feature is better than Trezor has or this feature is worse than Trezor has. And uh, the original idea was just very easy. We just uh, want to have uh, buttons and a display. Uh, the display being the crucial part because we wanted to... Uh, uh, we wanted to give a uh, uh, give a full verification uh, available to user, so they could uh, check not only the amounts they are sending, but also where uh, the coins are being sent to. And uh, this uh, this original design is very simplistic. It's minimalistic. It's very durable, even though it's made from plastic. Uh, but uh, that has another advantage: is very it's very light. So if you drop it for I don't know five meters. It will survive because uh, uh, it's uh, even if, if, if even if it's made of plastic, it's, it will survive such fall. And we plan to keep selling them because they are, like you said, they are the go-to solution for 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 people. Uh, and we still think it's a it's a very good product. Uh, Another model, like you said, is a Model T. It was released in February last year 2018 and uh it's it's an evolution of the idea uh where we replace the monochromatic means black and white uh, display with a colorful high-res display and we replace the buttons with the touch screen uh it provides a much better user experience for people that need to use uh, Trezor every day or if you want to perform like more complex operations, if you are sending uh, uh, coins in one transaction to multiple people, it's uh, much easier to check the correctness of the transaction of on, a, on a bigger display. And 
uh, we we consider that uh, as as like a flagship of our uh, products, and Trezor Model T is is uh, uh, oh sorry, Trezor One is uh, is like the entry entry level. That said, uh, most of the core uh, features, that means like management or uh, Bitcoin related features, are also available on Trezor Trezor One. So, uh, if you don't care about expert features, uh, Trezor One is perfect for for you. Uh, also, Model T uh, has uh, SD card, which allows us to perform uh, some of the actions that are just not possible on Trezor One. We might get uh, up to that uh, later, but one of these is basically we can perform a bootloader upgrade or firmware upgrade via SD card. So uh, if the device is bricked for whatever reason, or uh, if you just don't want to connect the device to the computer to perform the update, you could uh, do that via via SD card. Great. So let's start with multi-signature. So I All know right. that's, that's something that is, uh, the focus is coming on to that a little bit now, and there's a little bit more desire for multi-signature. I know currently it is possible to do with Electrum uh, that you can multi run a multi-sig out of that and use Trezor devices as part of your multi-sig set. Uh, I know also that um, the Trezor has, basically it displays some additional details about that transaction when you're performing the multi-signature. So did you want to just outline some of the thoughts around that? Yeah, uh, it's funny to say, uh, uh, it's funny to hear that you say that the multisig is uh, getting traction now, uh, because that's obviously true, but also it was getting traction back in uh, 2015. So there are not only the hype cycles for, for the price of the Bitcoin, but also for various features. And uh, back in 2015, uh, we were discussing how to introduce the multisig uh, in Trezor and uh, we were spending a lot of time with trying to come up with a great user experience and we discussed how these uh, multisig parties should be coordinated together and we were experimenting with uh, all of crazy synchronizing mechanisms via via Jabber or WebRTC so uh, you could uh, synchronize these parties over over the browser, but then we realized we are basically inventing like all like it seemed to us like we are in inventing the whole new internet. So we kind of postponed that uh, features and decided just to uh, finish the multisig implementation inside of the device and uh, see how the feature evolves. And it's nice to see that now there is another traction and basically we have all these multisig features in the hardware wallets and now we are trying to figure out how to make this user experience uh, uh, worthwhile for users. And one of the problems we had uh, back then in 2015 was that uh, there was not a very easy way how to prove that the multi-sig address is indeed being used. Uh, so if, if a software wallet shows you, all right, so this is the multi-sig address, you can use it. Uh, but still, you don't have a proof uh, that the connected device is indeed uh, is indeed uh, involved in that multi-sig scheme. 
so we came up with a mechanism that can uh, basically uh, a software wallet can tell uh, the device, please show me this this address, uh, this multisig address, and there is a proof that you are indeed involved in that multisig setup. And uh, the hardware wallet or Trezor in that case will uh, look at this proof and only if uh, it is able to reconstruct that proof, it will show the multisig address on, on the display. So that way you can be really sure that the software wallet, uh, that the address you see in the software wallet and at the same time, if you see the address on, on, on Trezor, you can be sure that particular treasure is indeed involved in that uh, multi-six scheme. Uh, this can be done best uh, in Electrum. If you have a multi-six setup uh, backed uh, via Trezor, there uh, is an eye icon uh, next to the address. And if you have a free Trezors connected, uh, there will be free eye icons next to the address and you can just press uh, first, second or third and it will show you the multi-sig, uh, multi-sig uh, address on uh, on the particular device. So you can check uh, and uh, re- really be sure that this Trezor was not omitted from the scheme and it's indeed being used. Fantastic. And yeah, so that's actually something I've recently tested out as well with um, Electrum as well. I just wanted to make sure that part of it as well, that you, you really can see it. So when you click the eye in Electrum and then it shows on your hardware device that's plugged in. Uh, although, uh, yeah, so and then the other component with multi-signature is also now the idea and this concept of, well, we want to try to, in some sense, make it more difficult for an attacker. And one way to do that is not just multi-signature with the same manufacturer, but multi-signature with other device types. So, can you talk to a little? Can you talk to us a little bit on setting up a multi-signature with different hard- hardware wallets? Sure. So, uh, if you want to use different hardware wallets, uh, and I think it's a good idea because then you are reducing uh, reducing the the fragility of of the setup basically uh, you need to find a solution that uh, communicates with uh, the hardware devices of different vendors and one of these uh, is uh, Electrum like we mentioned earlier there is a really good blog post by uh, Salim Rashid uh, on his uh, on his blog where he describes uh, experience uh, and uh, individual steps how to configure that but actually it's uh, pretty straightforward uh, there is there is a there is a guide in electrum so if you just choose i want to use multisig i want to use a hardware backing multisig uh, and then uh, it will try to look for the devices and you will just pick uh, the devices uh, for the, from from the detected list and it can create a scheme uh, for that, uh, there are also uh, companies, for example, uh, Casa. They are trying to make this process even even more uh, straightforward for people, and they also support uh, different uh, hardware vendors. And they also have some uh, enterprise uh, schemes, uh, or maybe not enterprise, but aimed for common users. But they are commercial schemes where. Uh, you can have uh, Casa participating as as one of the multi-sig parties. So in case something uh, goes wrong, you can use their uh, their servers to recover the situation. Great. 
Um, let's talk now about another concept is around backing up and the seed. And yeah. so related to that is this idea of Shamir's secret sharing. And so I know with uh, Trezor, there is this slip 39. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So uh, the original uh, standard for mnemonic seeds uh, was called, uh, or is still called BIP39. And we came up with the with the definition in 2013. Uh, it was not an original idea. There were some other implementations predating that. Uh, one of them was Alexum, Electrum, but it was never standardized. And we really felt that we need to put uh, uh, put there a standard so other hardware and software wallets can uh, implement that. And that way we could achieve interoperability of this seed. Uh, I'm really happy to say that now every hardware and even every single software wallet uh, supports BIP39. So uh, you can exchange these mnemonic backups uh, as you wish. Like if, if, if your hardware wallet breaks down, you can buy another one or even from another vendor or, or use the software wallet if, if, you, if you want to recover that. And uh, we... We thought we it would be great to come up with another standard, again, an open standard, so everybody can implement this. And we hope we will achieve interoperability of that uh, with the Shamir secret uh, sharing scheme. And the idea is uh, actually very simple. Uh, right now, if you initialize the Trezor, it will give you a set of words. They can be either 12 or 24 words. And you can use this mnemonic sentence to recover your device. Shamir secret sharing scheme is a so-called uh, threshold secret sharing scheme. So it will, it will give you, for example, uh, five uh, sentences. They are 20 words long. And during the initializ initialization, you would just say, all right, so these are these five sentences, but it is okay to provide just three of them to fully recover the secret. Uh, there is one big advantage of uh, on uh, just splitting the old seat. If you have a BIP39 seed and you split that uh, in a half, uh, there is an issue. Uh, if uh, if uh, uh, if somebody has half of your seed, then they can still uh, recover half of the secret. But the Shamir uh, scheme doesn't work that way. Like if you are, don't have enough uh, shares, if you are under the threshold, you cannot recover anything, and that's a really big advantage. And I think uh, the this this is the scheme that should be really used in case you want to have a function like that, and not to split uh, the old old seed uh, by some common some custom scheme. Right. Uh, so let me just clarify that. So as, yeah. as I understand that, this is the 12 or 24 word seed. And what some people have been doing, which is not the recommended practice, is to actually split that 24 word seed up and say, oh, I'll put half here and half there. But exactly. that obviously puts them at a greater risk. Let's say if, a, if an attacker gets one of those halves, now it's easier for them to try and brute force you or to try and you know, uh, figure out, you know, the, the what you're... Yeah. yeah. And so... This method, uh, you're saying to use Shamir's secret sharing, it, yeah. you can split that in a way that, say, those 24 words, you can split that in a more clever way, right? And so make it so that even if they got two of five in that example, 
they would not be able to recover your seed, correct? Exactly. If I, during the initialization, say you need three out of five, you need three out of five, nothing nothing less won't work. They wouldn't recover any, any uh, even partially secret. So uh, there is also an advanced version of uh, Shamir also described in the paper. And it's uh, it's uh, like a second second level of Shamir where we introduce we, we introduce groups. So you could uh, instruct Trezor to generate uh, two groups of seeds, and each group uh, will uh, again have its threshold. So uh, let me give an example. I have a group of family members, and I will say, "All right, so uh, we need three out of five of these family shares." Then I have a group of coworkers, and I would say, okay, we need four out of six of these coworker shares, and then I need two out of two of these group shares combined. So, so that that way I can create like a really complex setup uh, depending on who do I trust and who I don't trust. Uh, one of the parties could even be uh, like a lawyer. So in case something happens to me, uh, they can also interact. And this is something for, for the future for us to plan and to maybe discuss with the wider community which, uh, which kind of schemes make uh, sense for various uh, scenarios yeah and so as i understand it the other thing i'm keen to ask is how would it be implemented is this something that you would put inside the trezor web wallet interface or would it be a separate program uh, actually it's already implemented in the firmware in our beta firmware and uh, you just uh, instruct the trezor via the web wallet that you want to perform the recovery of such shares or initialization and the whole process is being done on, on the device this has a uh, one uh, big advantage and uh, obviously these shares uh, are much stronger if they are properly distributed among different uh, geographical areas and uh, in, in in the future we would like to make this process totally independent of the computer so you could just have a have a power bank and a trezor and travel all across these locations so you can you can recover them without without a computer. So that's why the full process uh, is being done now on Trezor device. Right. Is that uh, is that Trezor one or Trezor Model T only? It, it's just uh, Trezor Model T for now. Got it. Got it. Okay. Great. Um, Next thing I was, I was really keen to discuss is this concept of air gapping. And I think that is also now starting to become a little bit more front of, cent, front of mind for people. And they're trying to th- be a little more security conscious. They are concerned about having to directly plug the device into the computer. And if the computer has malware, then, okay, there's a risk there. And so some of the ideas I have heard and seen, so obviously there is the cold card. I know they have the SD card uh, ability that you can transfer you can ferry the transaction using that and then the other idea that people are talking about now is qr codes do you have any thoughts there on whether that could be something coming in trezor devices yeah Uh, first of all uh, i really do think that uh, even if you use usb connection you are already air gapped and protected from the malware obviously there are some of the risks uh 
that uh, might be hidden in the complexity of the USB stack. But that said, uh, if you are not using uh, USB stack, but then you are using SD card, there is another complexity hidden in the SD card driver or even in the file system driver. So you are just, uh, there is no silver bullet. You are just uh, exchanging one set of trade-offs with another. Uh, That said, uh, we want to give uh, our users a choice. So uh, it's uh, obvious that uh, with Trezor Model T having an SD card slot, we will, uh, uh, or we are already working on on that feature. So in some of the future releases, Trezor Model T would be able to sign the PSBT transaction stored on the SD card. But uh, like I said, it's, it's, not a, it's not a silver bullet because still, still, uh, still, uh, uh, there is no like a physical connection, but still there is there is data from the computer present on the on the SD card, and uh, we would need to still audit the security of uh, not only the, just of the SD card drivers, but file system drivers and uh, even the PSBT parser uh, as well. And uh, another air gapping uh, method you mentioned is a QR code. This uh, is uh, even better, it might seem, because uh, there are no uh, physical data present, or uh, or how would I say? But uh, there was one moment in the past that really uh, struck me, and uh, one of our external collaborators and uh, security researchers, Christian Reiter, he found a buffer overflow in uh, BEH32 encoding. Or, or decoding, and it was properly disclosed to all other vendors. Uh, it was not uh, like a very critical bug because it w- could just introduce maybe two or three extra bytes, uh, uh, unexpected extra bytes. But then I realized, well, this can also be used to exploit a system via the QR code because uh, if you are able to uh, create buffer overflow in in address decoder, basically, then you can uh, you can get that uh, piece of uh, piece of vulnerability over the QR code as well. So even that is not uh, even that is not like one hundred percent secure. But still, uh, this is kind of really esoteric or uh, not really possible possible hacks, I would say. Uh, an obvious uh, uh, disadvantage is that you would need to have a camera on a hardware wallet, which uh, makes it uh, harder to, to produce. And, uh, well, uh, it increases the price and increases the the length of the process and so on. So uh, like I said earlier, the original Trezor model uh, one was uh, aimed to be really simplistic and we are hesitant about adding new features and we are, it takes some time for us to, to evaluate that. Right, I see. Yeah, and I mean, I suppose that, yeah, I take your point that uh, QR codes aren't, uh, are not a silver bullet, but I, I, I wonder whether they might be seen as at least one step closer uh, or at least one, you know, at least a bit closer to being harder to hack than, say, the SD card um, option or the sure. direct plug USB, right? Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. There is but, one. And, and, yeah, sorry, go on. Uh, I just wanted to say a final words on that topic, and uh, that's 
there is another big disadvantage and that is that user experience uh, hurts uh, because then you have to swap either SD cards or you can only fit uh, one kilobyte of data into QR code and then the QR code is like really complex. So if you want to transmit a regular Bitcoin transaction, which is usually bigger than kilobyte, then you would need to exchange a set of QR codes and well, it's. Uh, I think it might be more secure in some sense of uh, things, but then if you are making process uh, obscure, then uh, it is more error prone, and then also security is hurt because uh, people can do mistakes, and they will do they will do mistakes. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a fair point as well. You've got the process fatigue risk, uh, but I suppose. From uh, I suppose for the people who are storing you know lots and lots of value for them they would think it's probably worthwhile. But I I totally appreciate from your point of view as well. It's a business and you've got to find that sweet spot in terms of what are people willing to pay for, right? Um, but yeah. maybe you would have like different devices and like a really higher end device which has like all the bells and whistles and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I understand uh, and it's hardware. So hardware is not an easy thing to make. So totally appreciate yeah. that as well. Um, another point I think is interesting for listeners and it's probably useful for them to know. And just from my recent interview with Andrew Chow, he was pointing out as well, he had some difficulties in trying to implement hardware wallet interface, HWI, with mm-hmm. Trezor 1 versus Trezor Model T. And the reason was with the Trezor 1, you actually can't input the pin physically on the device you've actually yeah. got to do the scrambled pin on the computer whereas with the model t you actually can enter the pin directly on the device and i think even if you want to try the passphrase recovery you can do it directly on the model t device so listeners might be might want to know that as well just for if they are thinking about okay future hwi support and you know additional security advantages that come from being able to enter directly on the device yeah, so uh, like we said earlier, Trezor Model T has a touchscreen, so we uh, we really want to make it possible to enter every possible piece of information directly on the device, so it never touches never touches the computer. And uh, like you said, it's not only limited to to PIN. Uh, there is a really nice feature of Trezor Model T, and that's uh, if you. Uh, unless you enter the pin the usb communication is not even enabled so uh, uh, on trezor model one uh, you need to start the usb communication in order to perform this scrambled uh, pin uh, entry so that, that brings also another level of security and with the passphrase, uh, yeah, for model one, you need to enter it on, on a computer. There's just uh, no other way yet, but we are exploring uh, various ways how to enter passphrase uh, directly on Trezor model one, but because there are just two buttons, you are very limited and we don't want to make this process awkward because if this process is awkward, then usually you end up with a really simple passphrase kind of defeating the purpose uh, altogether. With model T, it's uh, much uh, better because you have a touchscreen and uh, I personally use uh, rather complex passphrase and still I am able to to enter it directly directly on the device. Great. Look, so let's talk a little bit about you know Trezor hacks and uh, some of these other angles. I suppose just firstly for the listeners, if you're a newbie listener, 
some of this stuff might it might scare you, but remember it's all relative here, and you're better off using a hardware device than leaving it on an exchange. Um, but that said, I think it's useful as well just to make everyone aware. You know, these are the hacks and so on that can occur. Um, so some of the different ones I've seen. Uh, I mean, there's a range of them, right? So I think there was one around trying to infer from the the signal. Um, you know, what was the the pin or the passphrase? There's the other ones where if the attacker has physical access uh, to the device that they're able to kind of reverse out or pull out the the, the seed and the pin and just access from there. Um, did you want to just discuss around what was your process around that and then trying to mitigate against those? Yeah, sure. So security, including physical security, is a very complex topic. And uh, I have to admit, I'm also learning it uh, as it goes. And uh, what I learned uh, in the process is uh, everything, uh, be it hardware or software, is hackable. And the only thing that changes is the price of the attack. So if the attacker is uh, motivated and has enough resources, be that either people or or money, uh, they can get to your coins. Even if their moral standards are low, they can maybe mug you and torture you for 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 the pin or for the passphrase. So no uh, extraction from the device itself is needed, uh, so to say. Um, We've foreseen this, uh, and like I said, BIP39 was introduced in 2013, and uh, even that, the original release of that standard, uh, contained uh, a passphrase. So uh, it's an idea where you just don't use the seed store uh, into the, into, in the device to generate the keys, but you also use that uh, passphrase, which is uh, being added in the mix, and uh, only after providing the passphrase you can generate uh, generate or derive the the keys one uh, great property of this is that every passphrase is correct uh, so to say because uh, there is no mechanism uh, to to check the the correctness of, of the passphrase so what you can do is uh, you can uh, have a small amounts of bitcoins stored with empty passphrase then maybe uh, you can create a simple passphrase Passphrase like airplane and put uh, some more bitcoins onto there, and then you can have like super uh, super secret super complex passphrase where you would put most of your holdings into. And in case you are in the troubled situation, you can show uh, the attacker this simple passphrase, and there is no other way, or there is no way how to to prove there is another secret passphrase. So. That was the that was the original idea uh, behind the passphrases, but also uh, the protection of the physical security was another one in case the seat will uh, get compromised. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think I, I'm, I guess I'm just a little unsure how safe the passphrase part really can make you against like if they if they're there with you right there um, yeah. because. In reality, they could just keep hitting you, right? They could just keep, uh, you know, they could just keep hitting you until you give them everything. And they, and who knows? I mean, they, they, because even if 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 they're a smart attacker and they know how a trezor works and they know how pretty much every hardware wallet works with the passphrase, they could just keep, you know, going until they get everything. 
I suppose. But at the same time, it's it's there to provide some level of uh, protection. Uh, I think the other question that came up from some of the hardware hacks and so on uh, was around what length does your passphrase have to be to, to keep you safe? Because theoretically, if a, an attacker gains physical access to your Trezor device, they and it's a, you've run a very short passphrase, they may be able to brute force that and it might not take them that long to do that kind of attack. So can you just tell us a little bit of your thoughts around what length does it need to be to be safe? Yeah, so uh, we published a post on our blog titled uh, Is your price phrase strong enough? Where there are lots of uh, uh, good practices and uh, recommendations how to come up with a good uh, passphrase. Uh, you could either use a, use a dice wear to generate a basically another sentence of words that you memorize, or you can use a random generator to cre- create a lowercase sequence of, uh, of characters uh, and so on. And uh, there is a even a nice table included in the blog post. And uh, for example, uh, right now, if you use a 13 lowercase letters uh, for the passphrase, uh, the attack would cost around a billion dollars. So obviously uh, that's a lot. Uh, This will change uh, in the following 10 years because we have better computers uh, every year. But still, even in uh, 2030, the cost of this attack would be $10 million. And then we could discuss, like, if an attacker has uh, $1 billion right now, uh, what is easy easier to perform? Like, perform a hardware-level attack on some very sophisticated uh, hardware wallet or to perform a brute force uh, uh, attack on, on a passphrase. So we are... Uh, we are basically providing all these means to make it harder for an attacker, but in the end, it's the resources of the attacker that matters. And the other important factor is time. We want to make it as hard as possible for the attacker to attack that effectively. And if the attack takes, I don't know, two weeks to perform, then we are pretty much on the safe side because in if I do realize during that two weeks that my uh, hardware wallet is missing, I can still send the coins out of this uh, device. And that's a really big uh, big improvement because, for example, if your, I don't know, uh, credit card uh, is, uh, is, uh, uh, is, uh, is hacked, uh, you need to replace replace the device but in that case you can just generate a new passphrase and send send uh, send the coins to another passphrase for example right yeah and i think the other thing as well is the length of the passphrase that's required to make it safe so some of the best practices and so on like if you look at say uh, i think there was a cold cold bit blog post and i think from there it was basically saying okay remember humans are very bad at doing random or generating random numbers or characters best to yeah. use these dice uh diceware lists and so you you might you know sit there rolling dice and come up with a list of six or seven words and use that as your passphrase to help you know keep you more safe against the attacker but 
that also does bring in another whole layer because now you have to think about that from backups and restoration point of view because let's say uh, I need to think estate planning. You know, how do I pass it on to my heirs or to my family? Yeah. That's also an additional consideration. And the challenge then, I suppose, is there is a risk that the user will not correctly back up the passphrase as well as the seed and pass it and put it in some way that their family can access it when they die. Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so I suppose that's just the main risk I might just call out for the listeners. Uh, but absolutely, the passphrase is a good recommended practice. Um, but just just be aware of that uh, backup and restoration and estate planning aspect of it as well. Okay, so let's talk about now privacy. So this is also another topic that people are becoming a little bit more aware on and are starting to take some further steps. I suppose the one... the Right now, if a newbie just buys a Trezor and they just use it and they plug in and they go to, you know, wallet.trezor.io and so on, and they initialize that device, they are at that point, are they sharing their XPUB, the way to generate all their addresses with the Trezor web server? Uh, at the moment, uh, that's correct. Uh, you are sharing the the XPub with the whatever backend you are using. Uh, so if you are using uh, our backends, uh, that's true. Uh, also, uh, it's a little bit more complicated. It depends on on the coin. Uh, for some coin, you are not uh, sharing the whole XPub, just the individual addresses, and it it depends on what whether there is a there is an optimization for key derivation on on the server or not but that said uh there uh, is a way how you can use uh, our uh, our backend uh, run locally so if you don't uh, want to do that uh, you can uh, download the our, our backend sources because these are also open source and run them uh, for yourself Another option, uh, how to uh, initialize the device uh, uh, without uh, XPubs being shared, uh, for example, is uh, you can install a Python Trezor package, which contains uh, Trezor CTL uh, command line uh, tool. And uh, this can uh, perform most of the stuff you want to do with your device. So either initializing or getting addresses or sending transactions, but that's a little bit uh, too low level for regular use. But for initialization of the device, it's uh, just uh, perfect. And there, uh, there is always Electrum, like we said, uh, you can use Electrum and then uh, you can connect to whatever uh, address server you want to use, uh, even or your own one. And when it comes to privacy, uh, we have a li really big uh, uh, bulk of improvements coming up uh, uh, end of this year or maybe beginning of the next year. And uh, the idea is that we want to 
create a desktop software called uh, Trezor Suite. So uh, it will do everything that the current web wallet does, uh, but uh, in a desktop environment. And then there would be an option for the user to la- run the local Bitcoin Core instance. So the Trezor Suite uh, software could connect to it directly, or you could use Tor to, to connect to our backends if you don't want to run uh, if you don't want to run a local Bitcoin Core instance but uh, you want to use our servers but still you uh, want to protect your privacy and with uh, this Trezor suit we want to make this process as easy as possible so our current idea is to just have like a really really simple uh, checkbox like I want to run the Bitcoin Core instance uh, locally, and if you check it, uh, it will uh, do everything for you and connect to to the fully synced, synced instance. Or even uh, if you want to use our backends via Tor, again, we want to make it uh, as easy as uh, possible for for the user. Now oh, that's really good. I I didn't know about uh, Trezor Suite coming. Uh, is that a relatively new thing? Well, we've been uh, cooking that for quite some time, but there are a lot of uh, a lot of challenges and uh, and uh, not only technical uh, ones, but also a lot of uh, discussions about how the user experience should look. And uh, yeah, like I said, we want to make uh, it as easy as possible uh, because uh, uh, that's that's uh, that's our uh, that's our goal. Uh, we want to make things uh, secure, but also very very usable. Because only if they are easy to use, they are uh, indeed secure. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So look, let me just summarize that for the listeners. If they're a newbie and they couldn't quite follow everything there, basically, right now, if you use a Trezor with the standard web wallet, if you just go to wallet.trezor.io, you are giving up your XPub when you first initialize, meaning that the Trezor web server can, you know. Uh, kind of know your balances, right? Because that's that's how it knows your balances. And if you use it on Electrum without using something like Electrum Personal Server, Electrum X, or Electra, Electrum Rust Server, you're kind of giving off the bal- you're giving off the transaction data to the public server. But the good part is if Trezor Suite is coming, then that is a potential way that you can set up wholly on your own computer and or using Tor in such a way that you're not giving up as much of your privacy or if you're using fully own your own local bitcoin core then it's done in a way where you're not giving up any of your own uh information about your balances to the trezor web server would you say that's a fair summary yeah yeah i think that's correct also there is another option like you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the interview there is a project called uh, hwi which allows you to connect a uh, hardware wallet to a uh, local running bitcoin bitcoin core instance so there's uh, that's an that's also an option but it might be uh, tricky for uh, for common people to to use but that that's uh, that's the best thing you can do because uh, only if you are uh, running your own uh, Bitcoin Core instance, then you can be really sure there is no middleman bef- between you and the Bitcoin blockchain. Fantastic. All right, uh, let's talk about um, the question of Bitcoin only. So, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I think some. If I were to try and just reflect some of the what I'm going to call, quote-unquote, Bitcoin community sentiment, 
I think some of the more hardcore Bitcoiners feel like they get a bit paranoid when there's an update coming on their Trezor device because they're worried that, oh, I don't want to support, I don't care about shitcoin support, I just want to keep my Bitcoin safe. Um, is there an additional risk there around having uh, other altcoins in, uh, or support for them? Um, versus the kind of Bitcoin only, but at the same time, I want to be fair to you. I want to recognize your business, and so you've got to, you know, you've got to uh, make sales. So I don't uh, fault you for that. But what are your thoughts around the idea of having the? And I don't, I don't know. This is a topic you might have touched on before around the possibility of having Bitcoin only firmware. Yeah. So obviously, uh, we. We were born and raised in a Bitcoin community, and this is what we are coming from. And uh, I'm 100% Bitcoin. I don't own any any other coins. Uh, we are Bitcoin maximalists. But uh, to be uh, to be frank, uh, if it were not for uh, altcoins, uh, we would not survive the years uh, 2017 and 18. And this is something not a lot of people uh, realize. And uh, it's very easy for the new hardware wallets that will that came up uh, recently to say, "All right, so we we don't do 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 shitcoins." And uh, personally. Uh, if uh, the situation wasn't that bad uh, two years ago, I wouldn't uh, wouldn't uh, add uh, these alternative coins as well. But there are also some uh, uh, some voices uh, uh, among the company and outside of the company that are basically saying, "All right, so." Uh, there are people that will get uh, into altcoins and then they realize uh, there is only Bitcoin. So that's also kind of a little bit more stressful maybe, but also uh, an uh, onboarding of uh, new Bitcoin users through these altcoins uh, acquisitions. So uh, there is more things to that. And uh, when it comes to uh, frequency of the updates, uh, people are saying, oh, you are just adding some uh, altcoin stuff and I need to update all the time. Well, that's not really the case because uh, every time there is a firmware update, uh, there is some Bitcoin uh, or management uh, feature also being added. So I don't remember any firmware update that uh, included only altcoin related changes. And uh, of course, people are asking for Bitcoin-only firmware, and uh, we've de- done some uh, steps to that already. And it would uh, obviously make our release process a little bit harder because then we will we'll, uh, release uh, two sets of features in two firmwares uh, on each update. But this is something we are going to do. And uh, I'm not sure if it will be the next update or the update after afterwards. But yeah, we would really like to deliver that functionality to to our users, or this stripped down uh, functionality in a Bitcoin-only firmware to our users. <laughs> great, great. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, I think. Um... Oh, so FIDO2 authentication. So did you want to just touch on that as a feature? Uh, what is it and what, what should the Bitcoiners be thinking about when they want to use FIDO2? Yeah, so I would say most of the people that are interested in Bitcoin got somehow in contact with uh, U2F 
because of uh, some of the exchanges uh, are introducing uh, various forms of second factor authentications. So second factor authentication is a very simple concept when you have uh, something uh, uh, you uh, have and uh, something you know. And in the case of uh, U2F, the something you have is a hardware token and something you know is the password. So when you are logging into the application uh, or web application, you need to provide a username and a password, and then the website will ask you for uh, confirmation on, on, a, or on a hardware token. And usually that's uh, YubiKey because the, that's the company that pioneered, uh, pioneered that approach. And that's uh, that's better than the second factor authentications via SMSs, for example, because uh, the SMS network could be somehow intercepted and uh, uh, decoded. And there were also a lot of uh, social uh, engineering attacks on uh, uh, calling to mobile phone operators and persuading them to transfer the SIM card to some other person. So th- there are a lot of other other issues. And uh, Fido2 is uh, another generation of such uh, authentication method, and it's backwards compatible with U2F. So uh, it could work the same way as the old uh, U2F authentication, but also includes uh, something that I call passwordless authentication. And uh, there are, again, uh, two factors included. Uh, something you know, that's a hardware token. And uh, sorry, something you have, uh, that's a hardware token. And something you know, and that's that's a pin to a hardware token. So if you have a, a hardware token that is protected by a pin, you can get rid of the password, basically. And if you have got ridden of the password, you can very easily get rid of the username because you can use some public key uh, to identify you in the system instead of the username. So what FIDA2 loves you is to, uh, or it provides you a very simple and standardized way for a system application, web application, to ask you for uh, identity, and then you can provided using a hardware device and the hardware device can uh, verify the the correct uh, person is using that because there is pin involved in the process and this process is really straightforward because it gets uh, rid of all these uh, hassles uh, and uh, i've been reading about fido2 for since maybe 2 years we were reading some preliminary drafts uh, of the specification and that seemed like a really great thing to do. But only recently, a week ago, my colleague presented the Fido2 in our firmware, and I was like totally blown away. Like the user experience of Fido2 on Model T was just, just amazing. It, it would just. Uh, uh, show the name of the service on the display and your uh, identity being some uh, username in the system, for example, and then you would just scroll among the identities on the device. If there are more, 
you can of course register uh, twice on the same service and it, then you just confirm it on uh, on a trezor and you are automatically logged in no password uh, nothing else yeah that's great and um i definitely can reflect from my own use with the uh, model t it, it is quite a I haven't had a chance to use Fido 2 on it, obviously, but I, I, I do notice the uh, user interface is quite uh, easy on uh, uh, easy to use. Um, so look, Pavel, I think that's mostly the key questions I had for you, but did you have any closing thoughts on what we can expect to see coming from Satoshi Labs and Trezor devices? Uh, I mean, you mentioned the Trezor suite before, but um, just let us know if there's anything you would like to say about Trezor right now. Yeah, so... I think we covered most of the most exciting changes that are in the pipeline, like Shamir Backup or Fido2 or PSBT via SD card. And these things are in the pipeline for some time already, but it takes some time to to fully understand the, the feature when, it, when it's not a feature designed by us, for example, like Fido2. Also, it's very... Uh, very hard to even come up with your own uh, feature, for example, like Shamir. So there are a lot of discussions and this, this takes some time and also lots of uh, testing and implementing. But the good news is all of these uh, are already in uh, in a, like a testing phase, internal testing phase. So I really hope that these will be rolled out uh, very, very, very soon. And then the big uh, leap would be the Trezor suite, the desktop application for Trezor uh, that I mentioned with all these uh, extra features that were just not possible when uh, using the web application. So either it's Tor connection to backend servers or connecting to a local Bitcoin core instance. And I'm really excited to, to see that because uh, we think we uh, will uh, make uh, it even, even, even better for people to be private and self-sovereign and uh, while maintaining the, the same level of user experience they are really used to. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm definitely uh, looking forward to seeing the Trezor suite coming out and some of those features, as you mentioned. I think I'm, I'd definitely be keen to give those a try. Uh, so, look, I think that's basically it. But, yeah, obviously, before we let you go, Pavel, can you just tell my listeners where they can find you online and if they want to get a Trezor, where should they go? Yeah, sure. So, uh, the easiest way how to contact me is on Twitter. I'm uh, Pavel Rusnag on Twitter. Uh, Trezor also has its Twitter account. It's uh, twitter.com slash Trezor. Everything we do is open source, like I said. So, uh, github.com slash Trezor, there are all... uh, all possible sources to firmware backends. And obviously you can uh, find me uh, on GitHub among the GitHub issues uh, as well. We do all the development in public so you can see all the features we are working on. And uh, the Trezor website is uh, Trezor.io where you can get your devices. And we have a a small gift for our listeners because uh, this uh, episode is episode 100, if I'm correct. Yes, it is. So we uh, decided to give uh, our uh, our listeners a promo code. So if you use promo code SLP100 in our Trezor shop, you will get a discount for, for Trezors. And this promo code is valid for one week. Fantastic. 
All right. Well, I think that's pretty much going to do it for us. So thank you again for joining me today. Thank you very much for inviting me. And it was nice to, to see you and to chat in virtual person. <laughs> Hope you guys enjoyed that interview. Remember, you can get the show notes and subscribe to the show on my website, stefanlevera.com. Also, just a reminder to share this episode and the Hardware Wallet interview series with your friends so they do not leave their Bitcoins on an exchange and risk getting wrecked. That's it from me, guys. Thank you, and I will see you in the Citadels.